Well, hey, welcome to Center Church, whether you are here in the room or you're online. We are really, really glad that you're here. All right, I'm going to need some crowd participation right at the beginning, all right? You ready for that? All right, if you're a person who, like me, is very excited that it feels like the fall outside, okay? You were wearing a scarf in September when it was too hot to wear a scarf, but you wanted to wear it anyway. If that's you, in just a second, I'm going to need you to make a lot of noise, okay? I need to hear from my people that love the fall. All right, so on the count of three, I need to hear from you. Ready? One, two, three, yeah! All right, and if you don't love the fall, we're going to pray for you because you're wrong, okay? Like, man, I'm so glad that I get to bring the flannels out and it's feeling like the fall outside. It's a beautiful day. We're really glad that you're here. Um, if you're new, I just want to remind you, or if you just want to get more connected, if you've been around for a while, we have our Weekender coming up this upcoming weekend, this Friday and Saturday. The Weekender is your one-stop shop for connection here. If you want to take a next step about baptism, about getting involved in community, serving, membership, or just learning more about our church, man, it is your next step. It's going to be Friday night, Saturday morning, right here in this room. We would love to have you. Uh, we're going to feed you. We'll take care of your kids. So let us know that you're coming. Thank you to all of you that have already done that. You can do it by going to centerseville.com slash weekender, or you can go to the tent that's going to be right outside this door when you leave. We'll have some iPads there so that you can get signed up so that you can join us on Friday and Saturday. All right? Well, if you have a Bible, meet me in Exodus chapter 7. Meet me in Exodus chapter 7. The great American pastor and theologian, A.W. Tozer, once said, what comes to mind when you think of God is the single most important thing about you. What come, amen. What comes to mind when you think of God is the single most important thing about you. Now, why would that be the case? Because when we understand God's character accurately, we will relate to him appropriately. When we understand God's character accurately, we will relate to him appropriately, which means one of the best things that you can do for your soul is to take time to intentionally consider the character of God. That is what Exodus chapter 7 through chapter 10 is about. It is all about God revealing his character in his interaction with Pharaoh. You see, here's the context. God's people have been enslaved in Egypt for 400 years. God raises up Moses as a deliverer. He sends Moses to Pharaoh and says, let my people go. And in chapter 5, Pharaoh says, who is the Lord that I should let these people go? Who is God? And 7 through 10 is God answering that question in a very epic way. All right, it is a very epic answer to the question, who is the Lord? We are going to cover 121 verses today. All right, so buckle up. All right, now, here's what that means. We're not going to be here till Tuesday, I promise. I'm going to have to summarize as I go through the text. So here's, here's what we're going to do. I'm going to walk through the text. I'm going to explain what's going on. We're going to have to summarize and jump around a little bit. And then I'm going to draw out three things that we learn about the character of God from God's interaction with Pharaoh, okay? So look at chapter 7, verse 1 with me. It says this. And the Lord said to Moses, see, I have made you like God to Pharaoh. You shall speak all that I command you, and your brother Aaron shall tell Pharaoh to let the people of Israel go out of his land. See, chapter 7 through chapter 10 is one long contest between God, represented by Moses, and the Egyptian gods, represented by Pharaoh. That's why the verse says, I will make you like God to Pharaoh. And as modern people, sometimes these plays can seem a little random to us, can't they? Like, like gnats and flies and frogs and blood and what is all this about? What I hope to show you is that none of these plagues are random. These plagues are all extremely intentional to show the worthlessness of the Egyptian gods. To show that the gods that the people of Egypt worship simply could not do what they promised to do and only the Lord is the one true God. Now, here's what's fascinating as you understand what these different idols represented for the people of Egypt. The people of Egypt then worshiped the same things that we worship today. You see, they called them by different names. They maybe worship them in different ways, but it's the same fundamental issue. They are worshiping false gods. Those gods can't deliver them. Those gods are enslaving them. And the Lord mercifully shows who he is, that he is the one true God who can deliver on his promises. And what I hope happens for you today is you get just a glimpse of that. 
We all struggle with worshiping false gods. I'm going to show you that. And I hope that what we see today is that the Lord is good, that the Lord is powerful, that the Lord is mighty to save, and that the Lord can be trusted. So we might turn away from our false gods, from our gods that can't deliver, and instead worship the one Lord above. And that theme begins right away in verse 8. This is what happens. The Lord said to Moses and Aaron, when Pharaoh says to you, prove yourselves by working a miracle, take your staff, cast it down before Pharaoh, that it may become a serpent. So Moses and Aaron did just as the Lord commanded. Aaron cast down a staff, and it became a serpent, probably a, probably a cobra. Then the magicians of Egypt also did the same by their secret arts. But Aaron's staff swallowed up their staffs. Still, Pharaoh's heart was hardened, and he would not listen to them. So Moses and Aaron go into Pharaoh's presence. They do exactly what God told them to do. Aaron throws down the staff, bam, turns into a snake. Right? But then something crazy happens. The magicians of Egypt are able to replicate this sign. Now, how do they do that? We don't know, for, for, we don't know exactly. They could have been illusionists. They could have been snake charmers. They, they could have been connected to some sort of deep, demonic, dark power in Egypt. Right? But here's the point. The point is not gasp. The magicians were able to replicate this miracle. The point is what happens afterwards. Aaron's staff swallows their staff. The point of this interaction is that the best counterfeit that worldly gods have to offer is nothing compared to the one true God. I mean, Aaron's staff just swallows up theirs. They, they bring all their demonic powers to play. They, they're so, man, we can transform ours into snakes too, and then Aaron swallows theirs. That's, the, that's a summary of all, of all of these plagues. I'm the Lord, and I will swallow up your false gods. Now, because, uh, man, the, you know, the magicians were able to replicate this sign, Pharaoh, it says, hardened his heart and would not listen to the Lord. Now, what's interesting in this interaction is that six times we're told that either Pharaoh hardened his own heart or his heart was hardened, which implies he was the one who did it. But three times we're told that God hardened his heart. So this brings us right into the realm of God's sovereignty and human responsibility, okay? Because it's a fair question to ask. If God hardened Pharaoh's heart, is it fair that he then judged Pharaoh for not obeying? Let me give you a, a couple thoughts here. Number one, keep in mind that Pharaoh is a terrible person, okay? Before this happened, he had forcibly enslaved two million people in order to genocide, all right? So everything that happens to Pharaoh is absolutely just in what occurs. Second thing, the author intentionally mentions Pharaoh hardening his own heart. So we're obviously supposed to see that Pharaoh had some part that he played in this, right? He actively did it himself. Thirdly, most importantly, and probably most difficult for us to really believe at our core level, is that God is utterly sovereign. And he is not obligated to be merciful to anyone. He is not obligated to be merciful to Pharaoh or to me or to you. If you want to see that played out, read Romans chapter 9. But here's the good news of the gospel. If God has been merciful to you, be grateful because he didn't have to be. Right? Pharaoh and you and I and every person who's ever been born was born running away from God straight towards hell. And the fact that any of us are in God's people is because he reached out his sovereign arm and saved us. All right, so Pharaoh hardened his heart, God hardened his heart. I don't think this text is about the interaction between divine sovereignty and human responsibility. I think the point of this text is a warning to us. I think it's a warning that we might not harden our hearts in the same way. You see, how do we know that Pharaoh hardened his heart towards God? You can't tell. I can't look at you and be like, he's got a hard heart, she's got a soft one, right? We don't know. The only way you know what condition your heart is in is to the Lord is what condition your heart is in is to his word. God's word came to Pharaoh, and what did he do? He rejected it. God said, hey, change, and Pharaoh said, no. So here's the question we have to ask ourselves. When God's word tells us to change, what do we say? Do we, we say, yes, that's right. That's what we should say, <laughs> right? I mean, sometimes we have this idea that like, oh, I love God, but I'm not following his word, and it's not a biblical notion. Jesus said in John 14, 21, if you love me, you will keep my commandments. You can't say that you have this vibrant love relationship with God and neglect or reject his word. And so the question that we're going to get all throughout these plagues are, man, 
where am I rejecting the word of God? Where am I saying to the Lord of God, no, I don't want to change. You can't speak to that area of my life. Where are you and I acting like Pharaoh when God's word comes to us? And that is the warning and that is the question of this passage. Well, Pharaoh refuses to listen to God, which leads to the first plague. Chapter 7, verse 14. Then the Lord said to Moses, go to Pharaoh in the morning as he is going out to the water and say to him, the Lord, the God of the Hebrews sent me to you, saying, let my people go that they may serve me in the wilderness. But so far you have not obeyed. Thus says the Lord, by this you shall know that I am the Lord. I will strike the water that is in the Nile and it shall turn into blood. The fish in the Nile shall die and the Nile will stink. So what did the Nile represent in Egypt? A better question is, what did the Nile not represent in Egypt? The Nile was why Egypt existed. It's why the society developed there because of what it provided. It represented comfort, convenience, safety, prosperity, and power. Many of the same things that we worship in our society today. Because the Nile man, provided and represented those things, the Egyptians worshipped it as a god. They believed that it was the bloodstream of the god Osiris. Which is why we see Pharaoh in the morning going out to perform religious rites. He is having a quiet time to the God of Cyrus. That's what's happening. He did this every single morning. It comes up multiple times. And at the very moment that Pharaoh was worshiping the Nile, God turned it into blood. What's the point? Osiris is no God. Right? I know that you're looking to that river and you think it's going to give you what you need. You think it's going to give you the comfort that you long for, the convenience that you're drawn to, the safety that you want, prosperity and power. It cannot deliver. I'm going to turn that thing into blood. The fish are going to die. Your prosperity is going to go away and it's going to smell terrible, right? The point of this interaction is the very moment that Pharaoh is going out to worship his God, God strikes it to show I'm the one true God. And the Lord will do that in our lives sometimes. The Puritans referred, this, referred to this as a severe mercy. You see, God will topple our idols so that we see that he is the one true God. Maybe your idol is a relationship and you're still single. And the reason you're still single is God is trying to show you it's not going to satisfy you. No amount of relationship is going to satisfy. It doesn't matter how incredible he is. It doesn't matter how beautiful she is. It doesn't matter what a perfect match you are. She will not complete you. It just won't happen. Maybe, maybe you're really, really lonely. And maybe you're being drawn to a same-sex relationship because, man, there's a woman or a man that just seems to really understand you and get you. And, man, you're lonely and you want that. And here's what God is saying. He's saying it's not going to satisfy you. It's not going to do it. It cannot deliver what you want. Look, Osiris could not protect the Egyptians, and whatever your idol is cannot protect you. What you need is a relationship with the one true God. So the Lord strikes the Nile just to show the futility of idol worship. Now, it's worth noting that at different seasons of the year, red sediment will come into the Nile River and turn it red. And if the sediment's really, really heavy, the fish will die. And so over the years, some people have suggested that's all that happened. It wasn't a supernatural occurrence. It was a natural occurrence. But that doesn't really fit the narrative because the narrative tells us that the Nile turned into blood at a specific moment, exactly when Moses struck the river. There was a theological point there, but there was also, it was also immediate. It wasn't gradual. It wasn't seasonal. And think about Pharaoh. I mean, if, if you're Pharaoh and this happens every fall at the same time, you're like, Moses, that's not your God. That's like the seasons. Like, I'm not, I'm not dumb. Like, I know, I know what this is. Right? What, what we're supposed to see is that the Lord has control over the natural world. Now, I'll admit to you, I'll concede that it's hard for us to imagine these plagues today. It's just hard for us to get it into our heads. But just because we can't imagine something doesn't mean it's not reasonable. You see the difference? Just because you've never experienced something doesn't mean it's not reasonable. The real question is not, could the plagues happen? The real question is, does God exist? Because if God exists, and there's a lot of good reasons to believe that he does, and he created the, the natural order and he created natural law, then he could suspend it or supersede it when it fit his purposes. That's extraordinarily reasonable. So the question is not, did the plagues exist? The real question is, does God exist? And if the answer is yes, then it's entirely reasonable to believe that these plagues occurred as well. 
Well, Pharaoh doesn't take this to heart. He refuses to listen, which leads on to plague number two. Chapter eight, verse one. Then the Lord said to Moses, say to Pharaoh, thus says the Lord, let my people go that they may serve me. But if you refuse to let them go, behold, I will plague all your country with frogs. Okay, plagues two, three, four, and eight unleash the animal kingdom against humanity. Now, why do they do that? Because God is demonstrating that he can undo creation when it fits his purposes. You see, in Genesis 1:28, God gave mankind dominion over the animal kingdom. So in these plagues, he removes it. He causes the animal kingdom to attack mankind. Here's, here's what he's saying. Look, I can undo the threads of creation when it fits my purposes. So why frogs? It's kind of a weird thing, right? Why frogs? Right, one, because they're gross. But two, because the Egyptians worshipped a frog-headed goddess named Hecht. And Hecht was the goddess of fruitfulness. And fruitfulness worked in two directions. Fruitfulness in your family with kids and fruitfulness in your work, career advancement. So here's what they did. They would prostrate themselves before the goddess, Hecht, and they believed that Hecht would bless them with fruitfulness in their families and with their careers. I'm so glad that we don't worship our family or careers anymore. You know, it's like, what a primitive thing for these ancient people to do, right? They believed if I just give myself to this goddess, then I will have life. I will have a family. My career will go well. So what does God do? He says, okay, well, if you want some frogs, I'll give you some frogs, right? He fills the land with hundreds of thousands of frogs. I mean, it would have been disastrous for the environment. I mean, it would have spread tons of disease, very uncomfortable. My wife doesn't like to have a frog within a mile of the house, okay? I mean, everywhere you couldn't get away from them, right? And the magicians are actually able to replicate this. I don't know why you'd want to make more frogs after this happened, but magicians are like, we can do it too, and we, we don't know how. Uh, but man, these frogs are so intense that Pharaoh in verse 8 says, okay, 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 verse 8. Pharaoh called Moses and Aaron and said, plead with the Lord to take away the frogs from me and from my people, and I will let the people go to sacrifice to the Lord. So Pharaoh goes out, pleads with God. God causes all the frogs to die. And here's what's, here's, this is real irony here. The people then pile all the dead, decaying frogs up all around the country. The entire country smells terrible. And now the very God that is supposed to represent fruitfulness and life is decaying in giant piles all over the land. God is making a point. Look, your family and your career are good things, but they're not God things. Okay, they cannot bring deep, deep satisfaction to your soul. They are not the thing that can deliver you. Just like Hecht couldn't deliver the Egyptians, having four kids and a white picket fence can't deliver you, right? And getting to the next promotion and getting the next, you know, grad school and getting the next degree can't deliver you. They're good things, but they are not God things. Now, when God removed the frogs, Pharaoh did what we often do. When, man, affliction leaves us, he changed his mind. He hardened his heart and he says, I'm not gonna let you go, which leads to plague number three, verse 16. Then the Lord said to Moses, say to Aaron, stretch out your staff and strike the dust of the earth so that it may become gnats in all the land of Egypt. Now, the exact identity of this insect is debated, but we do know that it was some sort of nagging, biting, disease-spreading insect, probably lice or gnats. Okay, so why the dust? Again, it goes back to creation. God brought life from dust. He made Adam out of the dust. He can also bring death from dust. Just like God used the dust to form life, God can also use the dust to bring death to bring judgment. God is demonstrating, I am the Lord over all creation. And when I see fit, I can undo creation just like I put it together. Now, the Egyptian magicians try to replicate this plague. They're not able to do it, and they're even forced to confess, this is the finger of God. But still, Pharaoh wouldn't listen, which leads to plague number four, verse 20. Then the Lord said to Moses, say to Pharaoh, 
Thus says the Lord, let my people go that they may serve me, or else, if you will not let my people go, behold, I will send swarms of flies on you and your servants and your people and into your houses. But on that day, I will set apart the land of Goshen where my people dwell, the Israelites, so that no swarms of flies shall be there. So uh, Egyptian gods were clustered around three major arenas, water, land, and sky, not earth, wind, and fire, which is what you might have thought. Water, land, and sky. God has now demonstrated his power over the water by striking the Nile. He's demonstrated his power over the land by striking the dust. And here he demonstrates his power over the sky by filling the sky with swarms of biting flies. Now consider the power and sovereignty and wisdom of God. I mean, there are probably millions of flies in Egypt. And yet he draws a line between Goshen, where his people dwelt, and Egypt, and not a single fly crossed that line. I mean, how much power do you have to have over flies that you can tell them where to go and where they may not go so that they swarm in one land and they absolutely do not cross into the next? God is making it very clear that he draws a distinction between his people and Pharaoh's people, right? And that special protection is going to be maintained throughout the remainder of these plagues. Pharaoh speaks in verse 25. He says this, Then Pharaoh called Moses and Aaron and said, go, sacrifice to your God within the land. Now, this is really important. God had said, my people need to leave the land, go out into the wilderness, and there they will sacrifice. Moses says, okay, you may worship your God, but on my terms. You can go and worship your God, but you must do it within the land. That same thing happens today in our society. Our society often says, you may practice your faith in your heart and in your home, but not in public. You may be a follower of Christ as long as you also affirm these cultural values that men our society affirms. Pharaoh wanted the people to worship God on his terms, but that's not really worshiping God. Anytime we seek to worship God on our terms, we're actually worshiping ourselves. We're creating an image of God that doesn't exist, and then we're bowing down to that image, which by definition is now an idol. That's what Pharaoh was saying. Okay, okay, okay. You guys can go worship, but you've got to do it the way that I want you to do it. Well, Moses refuses those terms. And Pharaoh says, fine, fine, just plead that God will remove the flies. Moses does so, the flies are removed. What does Pharaoh do? He hardens his heart. He will not listen to the word of the Lord, leading to plague number five. Chapter nine, verse one. Then the Lord said to Moses, go into Pharaoh and say to him, let my people go that they may serve me. For if you refuse to let them go, behold, the hand of the Lord will fall with a very severe plague upon your livestock. You see, livestock was the main source of wealth in Egypt. They didn't have 401k plans. They didn't have retirement funds. What they had were strong reproducing flocks. So if you had a strong reproducing flock, it was your retirement plan. Okay, every year they'll produce a little bit more and I'll be good until I die. Because livestock were their source of wealth, they worshiped it. I mean, they had, uh, man, they had bullheaded gods. They, they made sacrifices using livestock. Man, they worshiped wealth. They worshiped financial security. Again, how primitive of those ancient people. Can't believe someone would worship wealth, worship money, worship financial security. The truth is we do the same thing today. That's probably the primary idol of our culture. Man, that, man, if I just have enough money, then I'm going to be good for the future. If I just have enough money, if I can buy these things, if I can live in this house, if I can be in that neighborhood, if my kids can go to that school, if I can dress in these clothes, then I will be satisfied. Except it's never worked. Right? America is the most affluent society that has ever existed in all of human history, and I would suggest we are the least contented society that's ever existed in all of human history. The equation is broken. <laughs> It's like we're like driving around the same cul-de-sac thinking it's going to change. It's just not going to change. And here's what we find. People have always done this. I mean, they did it in Egypt. They bowed down and they worshiped wealth and they thought it could give them satisfaction and security and meaning. And we do the same thing every single day. 
We bow down and we worship our careers because it gives us wealth. We bow down and we worship certain schools because they'll give us access to certain careers that'll give us wealth, right? We don't give generously or sacrificially to the church. Why? Because you worship wealth, right? It's just true. We do the exact same thing that the Egyptian does. So what does God do? He strikes the livestock. Boom, hits him with a plague. Why? Wealth can't save you. This is mercy. This is grace. Maybe God has you in a very hard financial position right now to show you that your money can't save you. Maybe God has you at a hard position at work because he wants you to see your career can't give you meaning. There's an article in the Atlantic a couple years ago, not a Christian magazine. Uh, There's an article in the Atlantic that said that for most millennials, they are hoping to find the majority of their meaning and purpose in life at work. It's kind of just the new identity. It's not going to work. You're never going to be able to find that in your career. So what God does is he strikes the livestock to show them, look, guys, you can't trust in the livestock. Money is no God. Still, Pharaoh's heart was hardened, leading to plague, number six. Chapter nine, verse eight. And the Lord said to Moses and Aaron, take handfuls of soot from the kiln and let Moses throw them in the air in the sight of Pharaoh. It shall become fine dust over all the land of Egypt and become boils breaking out in sores on man and beast throughout all the land of Egypt. And the magicians could not stand before Moses because of the boils. So this is the first plague that affected Egyptian people physically. It's kind of a foreshadowing of the Passover. And it's supposed to be deeply ironic that the magicians who were supposed to be standing against God defiantly now can't even stand up. I don't know how they were brought in there, maybe in like a cart or something, right? But they have so many boils on their body that they can't stand up. And there's a strong theme of justice in this plague because the kiln that is being referred to is more than likely the brick kilns that the Israelites had been enslaved to. That they had to work as slaves in the brick kilns. And so this is what's happening. God is taking the injustice of Pharaoh's nation as he calls in it to become a terror to them. They threw the dust up in the air. It came down as God's judgment. And he is vindicating his people. Still, Pharaoh wouldn't listen, leading to plague number seven, chapter nine, verse 13. Thus says the Lord, you are still exalting yourself against my people and will not let them go. Behold, about this time tomorrow, I will cause very heavy hail to fall, such as never has been in Egypt from the day it was founded until now. Like most modern uh, ancient cultures, the Egyptians believed that various gods controlled the weather, right? And nothing will make you feel out of control and small like the weather, right? Like you ever like woken up in the middle of the night because there's like a tornado watch on your phone and you're like, is a watch worse than a warning? I'm not sure which one, you know, I still don't know. And you like get up in the middle of the night, you like go down to your basement and you feel kind of like 90% of you feels ridiculous and the other 10% of you is totally freaking out, you know, you're like, because what are you going to do? Like if a tornado hits your house, what are you going to do? Nothing. Like you're just going to sit in the basement and hope that you don't die right? Weather has always made us feel how small we are, and so that's why ancient cultures worship various gods, thinking that they could protect them from the weather. What the Lord has shown is, I am the one true God who sends the weather to do my bidding, right? When I want to, I whistle for like a storm of the centuries like a dog. Like, okay, come over here to Egypt, and massive hail that destroyed everything, and lightning in the sky, and rain, a deluge. I mean, it absolutely destroyed all of the produce in Egypt. It was fearful. Verse 27, Then Pharaoh called Moses and Aaron and said to them, this time I have sinned. The Lord is in the right and I and my people are in the wrong. Plead with the Lord for there has been enough of God's thunder and hail. I will let you go. Now at first, this sounds really promising. It sounds like Pharaoh is getting it. He confesses, I've sinned. I'll let your people go. What happened? The storm of God's judgment frightened Pharaoh into what I would call worldly grief. But there's a difference between worldly grief and godly repentance. You see, worldly grief seeks relief from an affliction, right? Worldly grief seeks ease. Worldly grief wants to get out of whatever is hard. But godly repentance is a fundamental change in your disposition towards the Lord. See, Pharaoh did not experience that. And we know because when things got better, 
all of a sudden he hardened his heart again. He would not listen to the Lord. I would encourage you to consider, have you truly repented or have you simply experienced worldly grief? We have people that come to us all the time because something is going wrong in their life. Man, the marriage is on the rocks and the husband walked out. The kids have gone astray. There's a diagnosis from the doctor. Man, the job, you, know, you lost the job, right? In that moment, you're, you're driven to your end and you say, man, I need God in my life. I need to know about the gospel. And I'm so glad that you're here. But if you never move beyond fix my life to fix my heart, you're missing it. You see, Pharaoh had worldly grief. He wanted the storm to stop, but he didn't have godly repentance. He didn't want to get off the throne of his own life. You see, at some point, we have to move past, make my life easier, and we have to move to, Lord, I'm sorry, I'll get off the throne. And Pharaoh never got there, which leads to plague number eight, chapter 10, verse three. Moses and Aaron went into Pharaoh and said to him, thus says the Lord, the God of the Hebrews, how long, how long will you refuse to humble yourself before me? Let my people go that they may serve me. For if you refuse to let my people go, behold, tomorrow I will bring locusts into your country. Locusts were feared in the ancient world. They could wipe out your entire food supply. They could starve a nation if they came through. And you know that this is a big deal because Pharaoh starts trying to negotiate before it even comes, right? So, so he says in response, okay, your men may go worship the Lord, but not your women or children, right? This is Moses, or this is Pharaoh once again saying, you can worship God on my terms. Now, what's funny is that we often do the same thing, don't we? Pharaoh's like, all right, I'll, I'll obey you with this one part of my life, but not this other part of my life. I think we often do the same thing. It's like, I want to obey God in this area of my life, but not this area of my life, right? Maybe for you, it's finances. Like, I'm not obeying God in my finances or sexuality. I'm not obeying God in my sexuality or community or time commitments or career, whatever it is. We all have them. Man, we, we want to say to God, okay, God, I want you to be the Lord of these areas, but not these. And Pharaoh, or, and Moses just flat refuses this because the Lord is, the, the, God is either Lord of all or he's not Lord at all, right? That's what it means for him to be the one Lord God of all. So they reject uh, this arrangement, the locusts come, they devour all that's left in Egypt. And verse 16 says that Pharaoh hastily called Moses, confessed his sin, once again asked Moses to plead on his behalf. Moses did, the Lord removed the locusts. Lo and behold, Pharaoh hardened his heart again. Leading to plague number nine, chapter 10, verse 21. Then the Lord said to Moses, stretch out your hand toward heaven, that there may be darkness over the land of Egypt, a darkness to be felt. And for three days, there was utter darkness in the land of Egypt. Can you imagine sitting in utter darkness for three whole days? It would have been very disturbing, terrifying. So what is, what is this about? Well, it's really pretty profound. Um, the Egyptians believed that Pharaoh was the embodiment of the sun god Ray. And that because Pharaoh was the embodiment of the sun god Ray, their government could never be toppled. Because we've got a god who's our president. Right? So as long as Pharaoh is, you know, the embodiment of sun god Ray, like our government's good. It's going to protect us, provide for us, sustain us. So functionally, they worship their government. They put their hope in their political leader. What a strange thing they did. So glad that we're over that. Right? And here's what God is saying. Okay, you want to trust in your government? Let me show you how strong your government is. I will remove light from your land for three days. Look, Pharaoh is no embodiment of Ray. Ray cannot save you. A change in government cannot save you. Political structures cannot save us. Only the Lord God can save us. So the Lord removes light in response. Pharaoh finally breaks down and he says, all right, you can go into the wilderness, but you may not take your livestock. This is again, same theme. Pharaoh wants you to worship God on his terms. And when Moses refuses, Pharaoh becomes furious. He becomes furious. He drives Moses out of his presence, which sets the stage for the 10th plague, which we're gonna cover next week, okay? 
All right, blood, frogs, livestock, hail, locust, darkness. What is going on? What are we supposed to learn about God from these plagues? Well, I want us to see three things. All right, here's number one. The Lord alone is God. The Lord alone is God. All of this was started by chapter five when Pharaoh said, who is the Lord that I should obey him? So for three chapters, God says, this is who I am. I am the one true God. His utter uniqueness and explosive power and sovereignty is on full display. He says, if I want to, I can undo the threads of creation to do my purposes. Chapter 7, verse 5 says this, The Egyptians shall know that I am the Lord when I stretch out my hand against Egypt and bring out the people of Israel from among them. That is the big point. I alone am God. This is repeated in chapter 7, 17, 8, 10, 8, 19, 9, 16, and 10, 2. The clear teaching of the scriptures is that the God of the Bible is the one true God and that there are no others. Isaiah 45, 5 says, I am the Lord and there is no other. Besides me, there is no God. Exodus 20, verse 2 says, I am the Lord your God. You shall have no other gods before me. The Lord alone is God. That is clear from the scriptures. But throughout human history and in our own personal experience, we are constantly creating and bowing down to false gods. We are constantly creating and bowing down to false gods. Man, the Egyptians worshiped the Nile. The Israelites worshiped a golden calf in the wilderness. And Americans worship self, status, sex, and stuff. It's just what we do. The famous reformer John Calvin said this, the human heart is an idol factory. There's almost nothing that we will not turn into an idol and then bow down to. Regardless of age, stage, gender, ethnicity, or political persuasion, you and I are drawn to worship false gods. We just absolutely are. And the reason is that we have a dim view of the real God. And we think that these false gods will save us. We think that they'll satisfy us. We think that they'll give us what we really need to be okay. And this entire narrative is saying it won't work. But there is a God who can save. There is a God who can sustain. There is a God who can satisfy. There is a God who is truly in control. Trust in him. Now, the problem is we have a very hard time seeing idols in our own lives. We can see it in other people's lives. Just get married. But we have a hard time seeing it in our own lives. Let me give you an example. I heard a story of a, a woman from India who had become a believer, and she had this really incredible testimony. So an American pastor met her and said, man, you've got to come back to the States. I want you to come and, and share your testimony with all these churches. It'd be so encouraging. And she said, oh, no, no, no. I've been there. I can never go back. And he was like, why not? And she's like, I cannot deal with the idolatry there. And he was like, you're from India. Like, there's statues of false gods everywhere. And she's like, oh, no, I've been there. I cannot deal with how you people worship football. She's like, 100,000 people pack into a stadium to watch a silly game with 20-year-olds, and they bow down to it, and they scream, and they spend all their money on it. It disgusts me. You're like, oh. And she's like, I cannot deal with how you people worship sex. It's everywhere. It's on every website. It's on every advertisement. Like, it, it, it doesn't matter what's being advertised. It has something to do with sex. She's like, it disgusts me. She's like, I can't deal with how you people worship food. I mean, all the restaurants, all the food that you eat, man, it's just unbelievable. And all of a sudden, this pastor realized, man, it's hard to see idolatry in your own culture, right? He could easily see it in her culture. They're literal false gods. And she's like, oh, I see it just as clearly in America, and I can't deal with it. You see, idols are hard for us to see on our own. So what, what is an idol? Well, an idol is anything that you love or trust in more than God. It's not something you whittle, necessarily. It's anything that you love and trust in more than God. Usually, it's a good thing that becomes a God thing. It's a desire that becomes a demand, or it's when you uh, seek, to, seek to satisfy a legitimate need in an illegitimate way, all right? But again, it's, it's hard to spot. So, man, how do, we, how do we spot it? Let me try to 
Let me try to help you. Um, underneath every sin we commit is an idol we worship. Underneath every sin we commit is an idol we worship. So if you want to figure out what your idols are, just look at what your sin patterns are. So for instance, um, maybe I'm greedy, okay? I just want to make all the money. I don't give. I'm not generous. Like, I just am obsessed with money. I'm always stressed out about it. Well, why am I greedy? Well, maybe it's because money is a source of control for me. And if I have money, then I feel safe. And then I feel like I'll be okay in the future. You see, the real problem is not money. The real problem is my idol of control. And I think that money can give me that idol. You see that? Maybe for you, it's, it's um, to be in a relationship. Maybe you're single and you really want to be in a relationship. And so, man, what are you willing to give up to be in a relationship? Well, maybe it's your sexual standards. Maybe it's your spiritual standards. Maybe you're like, well, yeah, I don't think he's a Christian, but he'll come to church with me. Right? And that's so sad in like 10 years when you get married and then you're like, my husband's not a Christian. We're like, well, you know. Right? Anything you'll sacrifice to get is an idol. In, in the ancient world, they sacrificed animals. Today, we sacrifice time, money, family, marriage, et, you know, our ethical standards, our personal health. Right? Maybe you worship personal fitness. Okay? And, and salvation for you is a certain waistline. And damnation for you is being overweight. And so what's salvation for you? Well, it's your, it's your six-day-a-week workout plan. And God forbid, it's eating kale. You know, like, it, it's things that you're willing to sacrifice to get the thing that you want. Right? That's, that's what we're doing. That's what they were doing then, and that's what we are doing today. Now, why does this matter? Because I've said it before. Whatever your idol is, you have one, I have one, it can't do for us what it promises to do. It overpromises and underdelivers. And in the end, it enslaves us. Right? At first, it's like, man, I'm just going to have one drink to take the edge off. And then you're like, I can't even get through a week without drinking. So, man, I'm just going to go to that website one time this week. It's just been a stressful week. I just need kind of a release and like a little pop of pleasure. And then, man, it's like every other day. And then it's like every day. And then it's like, man, I can't believe the websites I'm going to now. What's happened? Man, you've, you've become enslaved to it. Or it's like, man, I, I'm really, really lonely. And, and I just, you know, I, I know he or she, man, isn't probably a, a good fit. But, man, I just, I just need somebody that will listen to me and will care for me. And so, yeah, I'll give up my, my standards. I'll give up what God's called me to do because I just feel like I need that comfort. And we all do this, and these idols enslave us, and they destroy us. And what's fascinating is, is it's not just Christians that have noticed this. Um, let me read you a quote from this is a now-deceased American novelist, David Foster Wallace, very, very successful novelist. He pointed this out during a commencement speech he gave at Kenyon College a few years ago. Everyone worships. The only choice we get is what to worship. And the compelling reason for maybe choosing some sort of God is that pretty much anything else you worship will eat you alive. If you worship money, you'll never have enough. If you worship sexual allure, you'll always feel ugly. If you worship intellect, you'll end up feeling stupid, a fraud, always on the verge of being found out. See, idolatry enslaves us. And we can't make real spiritual progress until we recognize what are the idols underneath the behaviors in our lives. And the entirety of these chapters is an invitation to repent of trusting in false gods and instead to put your hope and your allegiance and your faith in the one true God who can truly deliver. The Lord who fights for you, the Lord who loves you, the Lord who knit you together, the Lord who has a plan for your life, the Lord who sent his son to die so that you could be forgiven. Don't put your hope in some false God who wants to enslave you and destroy you. Put your hope and your faith in the one true God who can save and who can deliver. Let me ask you, what idol are you sacrificing to that you need to stop? That you need to draw a line in the sand and say, no more, I'm not going to that false God anymore. I'm going to worship the one true God. That's the first thing. Here's the second thing that I want us to see. Number two, the Lord fights for his people. 
The Lord fights for his people. The theme, let my people go, is repeated 22 times in this section. You could summarize all three chapters by saying, Pharaoh refused to let Israel go, so God fought for them. The Lord fights for his people. We see this all throughout the scriptures. In Joshua chapter 6, God brought the walls of Jericho down. In 2 Kings 19, God destroyed an entire Assyrian army in the night. And in the New Testament, Jesus came as the conquering king who fought the battle that you and I could never fight. He defeated Satan's sin and death, and he rose again so that you could be set free. Man, the Lord fights for his people. And that is intended to be an incredible comfort to you. Because here's what it means. If you are one of God's people, he is actively and intentionally in your life fighting for you right now. You know what he is not? He is not a clockmaker who set the world in motion and stepped away, as Thomas Jefferson believed. He is personally and intentionally and and actively involved in your life. Whatever area of your life feels overwhelming and hopeless, maybe it's some sin struggle, maybe it's some desire that has gone unfulfilled, maybe it's some hurt from your past, maybe it's some trauma that you're not sure you could ever get over, the Lord is active in that area fighting for you. Think about how incredibly specific he was with the land of Goshen. There was like a line that he drew in the sky that nothing came into Goshen. That is how intentional he is with you. He sees you, he knows you, he fights for you. And that is what the Lord does. Have you ever felt anxious thinking about the future? I have. And you're just like, gosh, like what, if, what if I lose my job? Like, what if I never get married? What if we can't have kids? What if my kids, man, don't work out? What, you know, what, what if I get sick? What if my parents get sick? What if my kids get sick? I mean, it's just like on and on and on. It can be really overwhelming. Here's what I found in my life. If I think about the future devoid of God's presence, I always get anxious. But if I remember that in the future, the God of all power will be there fighting for me, I no longer have to say what if, I can say even if. I can say, man, even if I lose my job, even if I never get married, even if we can't have kids, even if my kids go astray, even if I get sick, even if my loved one gets sick, even if things don't work out like I hope that they work out, if the Lord God Almighty is with me, fighting for me, then I'm gonna be okay. Man, the Lord fights for his people. If you are part of his people, you can take incredible comfort in the fact that he knows you, he loves you, and he's fighting for you. Man, there were plagues in the land of Egypt, but he drew a line and he protected his people in Goshen. Here's the third thing that we learned. Number three, the Lord is patient, but not tolerant. The Lord is patient, but not tolerant. Something that should strike us from this text is how extraordinarily patient God is with Pharaoh. He gives him 11 opportunities to repent. Let me ask you, what if you told your employee to do something 11 times? How, would you put up with that? How about a coach? What if a coach had a player who would not listen 11 times? How would that coach respond to that player? How about the military? If a, if a superior in the military had to tell their, their subordinate 11 times, it would not end well. We're supposed to be blown away by God's patience. And what we learn in the scriptures is that God is massively patient, that he is slow to anger, man, that he is long-suffering, that he is patient, but friends, he is not tolerant. With Pharaoh, he gave him 11 opportunities. Every time it got a little bit worse, every time the play got a little bit more severe, but he was going to deliver his people and he was going to judge sin. And that's what we're gonna see in the next chapter. Man, God will go to all lengths necessary to execute justice against sin. We see this all throughout the scriptures. Exodus 34, Numbers 18, Psalm 86, all describe God this way, as extraordinarily patient, but not tolerant of sin. That's picked up in the New Testament as well. 2 Peter 3.9 says this, the Lord is not slow to fulfill his promise, but is patient toward you, not wishing that any should perish, but that all should reach repentance. Man, the promise that Peter is referring to is God's promise to judge the wicked and vindicate the righteous. And what Peter is saying is, hey, God is wonderfully patient. He desires that all should repent, but one day he will execute justice. He will execute judgment against sin. 
The cross of Christ is the clearest indication in all of Scripture that God is not tolerant of sin. The reason the cross was so bloody, the reason the cross was so terrible was because that is how terrible our sin is. God's patient, but he's not tolerant. Now, this truth is not popular in our society because probably the chief cultural virtue right now is tolerance. And the word tolerance actually means um, endurance. Like, I will endure you and your behavior and beliefs that are different than mine. I won't be nasty to you. But our culture doesn't mean it that way. Our, our culture means, when they say tolerance, they mean I will celebrate and affirm all of your beliefs and behaviors, even if they dishonor God and they're bad for you. Friends, as, as Christians, if you're a follower of Christ, you are called to be man, loving, gracious, winsome, and patient, just like God is patient with you. But you cannot tolerate, you cannot affirm and celebrate beliefs that dishonor God and behaviors that are bad for people. Your love of God precludes you from being able to do so. Your love of neighbor precludes you from being able to do so. But constantly in our society, we're pressured to do that. Our society says, hey, it's fine for you to be a Christian as long as you affirm these behaviors. What is that? Well, that's just Pharaoh. Like, you can worship God if you do it on our terms. But in the end, if God were tolerant of sin, he wouldn't be worthy of worship. I mean, we, we get this intuitively. We all know that tolerance of wicked things is not ethical. Right? We know that it is wicked to tolerate sexual assault. Right? It's, it's wicked to tolerate police brutality or, or rioting or racism or tax evasion or extortion. We all, no one is saying that we should tolerate those things. So what do we mean when we as a culture say, man, we celebrate tolerance? Really what we mean is don't tell me what to do with my body. That's what it means. It means I am, I am calling you to affirm and celebrate whatever I des- decide to do with my body sexually. It's, it's a soft, kind way to say, don't tell me how to live my life. You know what it is? It's our way of saying, I want to be Pharaoh. I want to sit on the throne of my life, and when your word tells me to change, I'm going to reject it. I'm not going to listen. And hear me, this is not a they problem. This is a we problem. We all do this. Whether you hide behind the word tolerance or not, we all have areas of our life that we are sitting on the throne, and we're saying to God's word, I really don't want to do what you're calling me to do, and I'm not going to. You see, friends, if you're going to understand this passage accurately, here's what you have to understand. You are not Moses. You are Pharaoh. You're not Moses. You're Pharaoh. You want me to prove it to you? Who have you behaved more like in the last month? Right? What did Moses do? No matter what, he obeyed the word of the Lord in every area of his life. Is that what you've done? You've obeyed the word of the Lord in your time and your finances and your relationships and your sexuality? Or are you more like Pharaoh? And man, the word of God challenges something about you. And you're like, oh, no, I don't really want to do that. I'm just going to ignore that and move on to a different verse. Now, I kind of want to live life on my terms. I want to maybe have a little bit of God. I want to worship God on my terms. Maybe you're like Pharaoh and you've said, man, I'm going to change. And then you didn't. You see, friends, if we're honest with ourselves, we are not Moses. We are Pharaoh. And the Lord is patient. He is patient with you. He is gracious and merciful, but friends, he is not tolerant of your sin. He's not tolerant of my sin. Judgment will come. Hebrews 9.27 says, it is appointed for every man to die and after that face judgment. And when you die and stand before judgment, you will not stand in front of a mirror. You will stand in front of a judge. No matter what Pharaoh did, no matter how many times Pharaoh hardened his heart, God was going to vindicate himself. God was going to execute judgment. And the same is true in our lives. There is no escape from the judgment of God. But there is 
hope. You see, God gave Pharaoh a mediator. Did you pick up on that? Moses was Pharaoh's mediator. Christ is your mediator. You see, Pharaoh would say to Moses, go and intercede for me to the Lord. And Moses would go out and he'd intercede and the Lord would relent. You can do the same thing. You could appeal to Christ, your mediator, and Christ will appeal to the Father on your behalf and he will relent. You see, the tragedy of this story is that Pharaoh cut himself off from the only means of salvation available to him. He banished Moses from his presence. Friends, do not make that same mistake. 1 Timothy chapter 2, verse 15 says that Christ Jesus is the one mediator between God and man. He's it. There's not many ways up the mountain. There's one. Being a good person, going to church, being genuine, giving to charity will not mediate for you. Christ Jesus will mediate for you. You see, Christianity is very exclusive. There is one way. But it's also wildly inclusive. Anyone can come. Doesn't matter your age, stage of life, gender, ethnicity, economic background, moral record, whether you've been in church your whole life or this is your very first time. Anyone who will repent and appeal to Christ, he will receive and be your mediator. Praise the Lord. So my question is, have you done that? Have you appealed to Christ as your mediator or are you standing before God in defiance waiting for his judgment to fall? Christ can deliver you because he has absorbed the judgment of God for you. In Exodus chapter 9, verse 29, it says that at one point, Moses goes out of the city, he stretches out his hands to the Lord, and the storm of God's judgment ceased. 1,500 years later, Jesus Christ went outside the city. He stretched his hands out on the cross, and the storm of God's judgment towards you ceased because Jesus absorbed it. On the cross, Jesus died the death that you deserve for every time you've acted like Pharaoh. Every time you have rejected God's word and tried to call your own shots. But God loves you so much that when you rejected him again and again and again and again, he sent his son to die so you could be saved. Have you appealed to that mediator? If not, you're in grave danger. But if you have, consider the mercy and the grace and the kindness of God. Consider the power of God that he alone is the one true God. And let that motivate you to cast down your idols, to tear them down and say, I will sacrifice to you no more. Father, thank you for your patience. Thank you for your kindness. Thank you that you have made a way for us to be saved through the one mediator between God and man, Jesus Christ. Lord, I pray for everyone that is listening to me now that would you grant us the gift of faith, that we would repent. We would repent of acting like Pharaoh. And God, we would humble ourselves before you and we would find life and forgiveness and we would know that you are the one true God who can sustain and who can save and who can deliver. So God, give us faith to believe. Give us soft hearts. For the sake of your name, we pray these things. Amen. Let's stand in response and sing together.